everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. There's a saying, strike while the iron is hot. It's not really a saying that applies much to me, though, because I always require time to process things. I have knee-jerk responses, but I know myself, and it's almost always better for me to not react in the moment and rather think about what's really going on before speaking or acting. Certainly sometimes, jumping into something that's happening in the moment means being able to offer immediate support. Sometimes, though, hot takes get lost in a whirlwind of public voices, and there's something to be said about the other saying, that cooler heads prevail. A lot of times, it's a good idea to let people calm down and chill out a bit before trying to engage them, at least for me. I have a tendency to come on a little strong out of the gate, especially if I'm angry. And others, who are also angry, don't really take to that very well. So there are costs and benefits to reacting in the moment or waiting to address an issue. For me, knowing I'm not a person who processes things quickly, waiting is generally better. I've had a topic in mind for some weeks now, but I've been mulling over how to explain it in relatable terms. Last episode was pretty short, and also, it ended up being prophetic. It was a fable about a woman whose daughter was killed in an accident. The woman makes a charm bracelet that is symbolic of her experiences after the loss of her daughter, including her forgiveness, and gives it as a gift to the perpetrator. The perpetrator examines the bracelet and rejects it on the shallow grounds that the bracelet really isn't their preferred style of jewelry. Sometimes we judge something without any real capacity to appreciate what it means and how it needs to be assessed. When we do that, it can range from humorous ignorance to cultural or contextual insensitivity that has damaging impact and results. Denigrating culturally significant offerings and expressions due to our own cultural ignorance. When there's already a power imbalance in play, such as person A having killed the child of person B, such a rejection can be devastating and do significant damage to someone already experiencing harm at my hands. I didn't want to get into too much detail in the prior episode about where this story came from, and specifically what it represents, because like most lessons, it isn't really limited to the specific situation that inspired it. It has much broader applicability. Weirdly, though, in this case... The greater applicability came in the form of a specific personal conversation that happened to mirror the exact same conversation on a larger world stage, only about a week later. I don't know how much of my audience are football fans. I really am not, but I do watch the occasional game with my roommate, and I tend to watch the Super Bowl just as a spectacle and also because some of my design background included advertising and marketing, so I like to see the ads. In fact, when it comes to the Super Bowl, it's more likely I will recall the advertisements than who played the game. Just as an aside, this year's game commanded $7 million for 30 seconds of ad time, and it's one of the most watched events in the U.S. annually. Let's just say that there are a lot of U.S. citizens paying attention to their televisions during these few hours of broadcast, and having a presence on screen during this event is a very big deal. I want to switch gears here to talk about a lesson that took me some time to learn. It involves infertility, and so if this is a painful issue for you, consider this a content warning, because I'm going to talk about my own insensitivity to this issue, and also how I learned to be more sensitive to it at the expense of a few people I hurt with unkind and thoughtless words. 
I was always aware that there were couples who struggled with infertility and that this was a pain point. I didn't relate to it personally because I've never wanted children of my own. My perspective is that more humans aren't really necessary at this point in our history, and if I wanted a child or a family, I'd probably adopt a child that needs a family rather than start making new people. I now also have become aware of a lot of ethical problems that surround many types of adoption, and so there's that as well, but it's a conversation for another day. Suffice to say that I never personally experienced any drive or desire to create another human being, and it was hard for me to relate to that drive in others. But I still respected it was something that people struggled with, and I treated it as such. The part that went too far beyond me to grasp for most of my life was the reality that some people have a deep desire not only to have a biological child, but to actually be pregnant to carry and gestate another human being up to and including the birth itself. This is something I cannot understand. Again, I accept it, but it's well beyond my ability to relate to this idea of wanting to put my life and health at risk, wanting to throw up for weeks, wanting to have my internal organs shifted around, wanting to be regularly making trips to a doctor, wanting to not be able to be comfortable or stand up easily or sleep, wanting to push out something that is effectively the size of a bowling ball through an opening in my body over a span of hours or even days of intense and painful struggle. The idea to me of a person desperately wanting to have this experience simply boggles me to this day, even though I now have learned this is a thing some people want. It would be like someone telling me that they're terribly psychologically harmed by the fact that they never got to go on a ventilator during COVID. My point here is not judgment of the people who want to be pregnant. Obviously, before I realized there were such people, there was no judgment because I didn't even fathom that they existed. But one day, a co-worker adopted a little girl from Texas CPS. The child arrived at only eight days old. And my very ignorant and hurtful comment to her when she expressed her joy was to say how lucky she was to have a baby come to her in a way that did not require all of the risk and pain and horror that is pregnancy and birth. This, I thought, was very fortunate for her. However, she corrected me and said that it was hurtful to her that she was not able to have a pregnancy and birth a child. And here I was an adult hearing this idea for the first time. At this point, I was judgmental. I thought it was a very odd thing to hear or to want. Although I did apologize externally, internally I was still processing her words like the COVID ventilator statement. It was so strange to me that I shared the story with a friend a few years later when we were talking about human reproduction. I said something like, I once knew a woman who, and told the story about my coworker. The woman I was talking to explained that she was also unable to have a successful pregnancy and birth, and that this was also a source of pain to her as well. And there I was in the same situation, only the second time that this issue had ever come up. So, unfortunately, it took me hurting someone else to finally get the idea that this was not as uncommon as I would have guessed. And since then, I've come to learn and understand that many people have this experience and it's by no means limited to cis women. But I know now to keep my thoughts to myself, to keep my lack of understanding to myself, to keep my inability to empathize with myself, 
to keep my ignorance to myself. Because I care about these people who are harmed by my inability to understand their situation. I don't want to hurt people or antagonize people over something that I now realize causes them a great deal of internalized pain and anguish. I probably am never going to understand why they experience this, but I am clear now on the fact that they do experience it, and I'm human being enough at this point in my life to not want to do harm to people by pushing my own view on this because it's completely inappropriate. I hurt people because I did not know better. But as the saying goes, when I knew better, I did better. I'm just sorry that it took damage to two people who really didn't need that and who were coping with a very painful issue for me to figure this out. So now if a person comes to me to say they hurt because they can't get pregnant and birth a baby, I no longer assume that they're saying they're sad because they can't have a baby, that it's just the outcome that they're sad about. I now know that this person could very well be sad and in pain because they actually want to gestate and birth a baby, that they want to experience that process. And it's not about me. It's not about my view of it. It's not about whether I can understand it or relate to it or find it reasonable that they want what they want. All that matters when I'm in this situation with them is them and their feelings and their pain. And if I don't have anything supportive to say, then the best thing for me to do is to say nothing. The worst thing for me to do would be to explain my views on this situation and how I would feel about it if it were me. Because they aren't me, and they don't share my views, and it's a source of great pain to them. And if I say things to minimize and dismiss that with them, that's just me doing damage for no reason other than my own sense of overblown entitlement that every situation has to do with me and what I think of it, even when it has nothing to do with me and what I think of it. Again, do I want to be the hurtful asshole rejecting the bracelet? The answer is no. I'd rather be a decent human being. So what do the Super Bowl and infertility have in common? This past Super Bowl halftime show featured a host of iconic hip-hop artists, all but one of whom was black. The fallout from the show just so happened to echo a conversation between two friends of mine on social media. One is white and the other is black. Both are musicians. I want to be clear that I always encourage people in privileged positions to seek out community voices for better understanding. But it's just a fact that people in privilege have an unfortunate tendency to run to one another when they have been called out by a marginalized person. I think there are a number of reasons for this. Sometimes, certainly, they just want reassurance that they've done nothing wrong and are a good person, and they're more likely to get that from someone with the same prejudices and bigotries that they have. But believe it or not, empowered, privileged people also feel a sense of intimidation about the potential they may do more harm if they try to work out their thought processes with people who are marginalized. And honestly, this is not an unfounded fear. When people with privilege do harm and try to work through understanding that with a marginalized person, they can totally do more harm. But this is the benefit of push information. Marginalized people actually do put information out for the benefit of people like me and others who need to learn more and don't want to risk hurting people to do it, just as I hurt people before I learned my lesson on infertility. If only I had taken my coworker seriously initially, 
I might have taken the time to learn more about her situation and how people like her feel before making the same hurtful mistake again with my friend. And in the days of the internet and Google, there's no excuse for ignorance anymore, or for using marginalized people as unpaid personal tutors who should make themselves vulnerable by putting themselves at risk of pain and damage so that we can learn how not to be complete assholes. The conversation came to my attention when my white friend told me that they'd been told it was racist to not like hip-hop. This sounded odd to me, and I really couldn't comment on it because I was only hearing one side. And usually when someone in privilege engages with someone marginalized and something odd comes out of it, it's because the dominant culture narrative is keeping someone on the oppressor side of the equation from really hearing what the marginalized person is trying to convey. In this case, I wondered about it, but I thought better of going to my black friend to ask their side of it because I didn't want to come across sounding accusatory. That is, I didn't want to risk reinforcing in their mind that a white person ran to another white person to validate that they weren't racist. I want to be clear that I'm not suggesting that's what my white friend was doing. I think they were genuinely confused. But I knew how it might look, and I decided not to bother anyone about it, and instead do my own research and see what black community voices had to say about the issue. It didn't take long for me to see how relevant hip-hop is to the black community. And that's when I wrote the fable to help convey the idea that you can't judge some things purely on aesthetic preferences. That is, a white person might not like hip-hop from a personal aesthetic standpoint. But as the oppressor responsible for creating the need for an expression of oppression out of black communities, it's kind of important that I learn to at least respect and understand the message and the cultural value that's coming out of that music, because I help create that culture of oppression every day. And that's what the fable was about. I wrote it without ever consulting my black friend, but he was the first one to react to it and asked if he could share it. Meanwhile, my white friend also saw it and recognized herself in it and began to grasp where the disconnect was occurring. They had some further conversation, an apology was issued, and she can now go forward, hopefully with greater understanding and appreciation, having gained more cultural sensitivity on this matter. Very similar to me finally coming to understand the context of my friends who struggled with infertility. And again, all of this went down just days before the Super Bowl halftime show, which I honestly knew nothing about until I saw it on game day. When I did see it, after having gone through all of that on a personal level, it had a lot more meaning for me. I saw black culture and black voices on a world stage singing the story of black oppression in the United States to a mostly white audience in a white supremacist society. It was awesome and inspiring. It was bold and beautiful. And I am so not well-versed in hip-hop that I had to be told who the artists on stage were. I didn't know the songs, but what I did know was that I was seeing history made. I was seeing something important and weighty and unprecedented happening on that stage, on that field. Oppression was being given a voice and no racists there to shut it down. Being in Texas, the meaning went even deeper. In fact, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick was busy posting about silencing black voices and black history on his Facebook feed. I apologize in advance for his racist and ableist language, but here's what he was busy signaling. Quote, I will not stand by and let loony Marxist UT professors poison the minds of young students with critical race theory. 
We banned it in publicly funded K-12, and we will ban it in publicly funded higher ed. That's why we created the Liberty Institute at UT. He attached that statement to an article in the Austin American Statesman titled, UT Faculty Council Passes Resolution Supporting Freedom to Teach Critical Race Theory, a white supremacist silencing a message of black oppression. In Texas, we have pushed to silence black votes, black history, black oppression. We're doing racist oppression and white supremacy in plain sight. We just aren't going to let anyone talk about it or do anything to stop it. And this is why those black voices on that stage, churning out that genre of music that is known for its expression of all things people like Dan Patrick fear so violently, was so, so very important. Dan Patrick couldn't silence what was on that stage, couldn't kill it, couldn't shut it down. I'm going to include an article in the resource links from Black Enterprise. It's titled Black Twitter Erupts About the 2022 Super Bowl Halftime Performance. It featured a selection of the types of tweets coming out of the Black community on social media with people bursting with celebration and excitement. Some of it was pointed, such as Michael Harriet's There were more Black people dancing on stage in the Super Bowl halftime show than the combined number of Black head coaches, GMs, and team presidents in NFL history. Not that I was counting. I didn't even watch. I'm just guessing there was more than 24 Black people dancing. Some of it anticipated the backlash that was to come, because any time a black voice gets attention, there will be retribution from white racists. We saw it after the record black turnout in the last election, in the form of all the restrictions I've already mentioned. Black voters dared to show up and be heard, and now they are absolutely facing backlash. And this tweet, with a touch of humor, anticipates it. Kenny Booyah says, Due to backlash, next year's Super Bowl halftime show will feature Ted Nugent, Kid Rock, Hank Williams Jr., Travis Tritt, and Chachi singing the Happy Days theme song. Others noted that it was an appropriate way to honor Black History Month. Alexa Play BMF by Rick Ross says, Crip walking on the Super Bowl halftime show is definitely giving Black History Month applause. And something I will get back to later Many of the tweets noted Eminem taking a knee, and why, as the only white performer on the stage, he was uniquely situated to do so. According to Sylvia, the only white performer on stage during the Super Bowl halftime show being the one to take the risk of taking a knee is my kind of protest. I felt happy for all these people. I was excited for them. Reading message after message of how meaningful and satisfying this was. When you're denied a voice and disempowered, and then you see your message shouted from such a visible event for a lot of people, that has meaning. It may only be a symbolic gesture, but that's what symbols do. They convey meaning. And sometimes that meaning is inspirational, like it was for many people in the Black community, but sometimes it's infuriating and enraging, as it was for many white people. And sometimes it's totally missed by people who are oblivious to the fact that there's even something going on right in front of their faces. But the Black community and many people I know who are Black weren't allowed to have even one day to enjoy it because if there is one thing white supremacists cannot handle, it's a Black person having attention and a voice to talk about their oppression. They can have one or the other, a platform or a voice, but not both. 
express all you want as long as you don't have a platform to be heard. Or have all the platform you want as long as you don't use your voice from that platform. This brings me to a question that came up a few times from fellow white people who were confused. There have been black performers at the Super Bowl before. Heck, most of the players are black. So why is this such a big deal to see black people at the Super Bowl? I don't want to diminish the idea of black firsts. The first black player, the first black performer, the first black coach, the first black cheerleader. Heck, one day we may see an NFL's first black owner. I mean, we can dream, right? But the NFL is still a white man's game. Some of the players are paid well, but what kind of money do you think is going through the bank accounts of the guy who actually owns the franchise and funds those high-dollar checks for the entire team and still makes oodles of profit? I mean, we're talking about a sport where white owners literally control teams of players, many of whom are black. The players are amazing. They're skilled, they're talented, they're dedicated, but we know who they're working for. We know who is buying those tickets. The 2022 Super Bowl ticket packages listed at On Location started at $3,272 per person. According to NBC Sports Online, Ticketmaster, the official ticket marketplace of the NFL, had listed tickets starting at $6,800 for the lowest ticket and reaching all the way up to $81,800 for the VIP seats. Who do you think is buying these tickets? The Los Angeles Times reported on results of an online poll they had hosted. The poll found that while more than half of American adults say they are fans, the people who say they are less of a fan now than they were five years ago are more than twice as likely to believe the NFL is doing, quote, too much to show respect for its black players, unquote. These same folks are also less likely to approve of the so-called Rooney Rule, which mandates that NFL teams interview non-white men as candidates for head coaching jobs. The horror. I want to be clear on who we're talking about. Roughly a third of those surveyed put themselves in the category of being less of a fan, and those people disproportionately identify as Republican or independents who lean right. A full 45% of them think the NFL does too much to respect black players, compared with 22% of adults nationwide. Roughly 70% of NFL players are black. So again, you can have a platform or a voice, but not both. The players are there for entertainment. The moment they so much as take a knee, white supremacists lose their collective shit and cannot bear it. You can only have the platform if you don't use it to amplify your voice about oppression. Your voice needs to stay quiet. Keep your voice away from the platform. We allowed you that platform so you can entertain us, not so you can push back on us for how we treat black people and communities. Isn't that the message? Again, this in no way is to disparage the players. It's pure racist fan attitude that comes out of a racist system where we can't handle black people who express actual agency and autonomy and want to address racist oppression. A black person with a voice and a platform is pretty scary in a white supremacist society. It's why states like Texas are banning books, restricting curriculums, making it hard for folks to vote. They know that if their white supremacist narrative is challenged, it won't hold up. It can't. 
It's exactly how conservative religion reacts to opposing views, doing all it can to silence them. Performers like Janet Jackson have been on that stage. Again, a fan favorite across racial lines. Loads of white people love Janet Jackson. She is a talented entertainer, and white people enjoy her music. It gives them a beat they can dance to. She's a great performer and a lovely singer and a wonderful dancer who has invested a great deal into her art, and I respect her achievement. I want to be clear that I'm not at all saying she's doing anything problematic here. I'm just noting that it doesn't make white people feel threatened because they still view the relationship as her entertaining them. And that dynamic is comfortable because they're the ones buying the tickets and attending the shows and deriving the benefit from her performance. So for white people, this is comfortable and not a challenge to their social standing, even though Jackson very likely earns more money than most folks attending her shows, regardless of race. But hip-hop as a genre is more than a good beat and talented singers. It's not just entertainment. When white people hear hip-hop, it's challenging. It's telling us about the fallout from our racist system. It's confronting us with uncomfortable truths as white people. In the Hip Hop Advisor blog article, Hip Hop Influence on the Black Community, author Jessica writes the following. Because the music is aggressive in nature and promotes social revolution, hip hop has produced a platform for MCs and rappers to show their beliefs about society, the government, and the long-time treatment of African Americans. Hip hop culture could be observed as a direct response to the socioeconomic issues that issued from that history. The black community, as well as other traditionally marginalized societies, directed dissatisfaction from offenses into rich protests through the restructuring of social stands and possibilities by means of musical creation. Eventually, notwithstanding the abuse placed on rap for the fame of violence in American society, hip-hop music is a trait of cultural struggle as the product of a set of historical, political, and economic circumstances and to study the role it has subserved as a voice for those crushed by political and economic force. This is the difference between pop artists and hip-hop artists. I'm not saying a pop song can't have political messaging. I'm saying that one is a genre known as entertaining, and the other is a genre specifically tied to political revolution and addressing oppression and marginalization, often with regard to race. And this is a difference that many people in the black community recognize. And it's a difference white supremacists recognize. But it's also a difference that a lot of people who are tuned out of racial conflict are completely oblivious to. And this comfortable ignorance can make people dangerous, because the status quo, where they feel comfortable, keeps black communities and people oppressed. What we don't know, and how that ignorance translates to harm, can create substantial damage to marginalized communities. This is why learning to recognize social power dynamics is so important and is, in fact, an obligation for people who gain social advantages based on the exploitation of other people and communities, which is most of us in one way or another. I also want to touch on another view that has merit. Kendall Cunningham at the Daily Beast wrote a piece entitled Don't Be Fooled by Jay-Z's Star-Studded Super Bowl Halftime Show. She says... At a time when innocuous rap music videos incite week-long brain-melting culture wars between the right and the left, one can easily visualize the combative morning-after takes this event will inevitably spur on social media and in the news. 
Right-wing commentators like Ben Shapiro, Candace Owens, and Tucker Carlson will get on their racist soapboxes to denounce the NFL for, quote, promoting gangster culture, unquote, and attempt to label the undoubtedly censored lyrical content unsuitable for children. Presuming that the artists will likely make some sort of political gesture toward racial equality, as black musicians have historically been known to do, but especially in the past two years since the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, these pundits will also be spewing their typical anti-Black Lives Matter sentiment. Meanwhile, liberals on CNN, MSNBC, and Twitter who enjoy clapping back at right-wingers will spend the ensuing days defending the genre of hip-hop. But beyond Kaepernick and the way the league suppresses black voices, it's even more abhorrent that the league has decided to host this major moment in black culture as retired black players and their families await compensation and medical benefits from a 2013 class action lawsuit against the NFL for neurological injuries. Certainly the corporatization of social justice is a legitimate concern and debate. In a capitalist culture, should companies use their platforms to promote social justice messaging or stay silent? When they do express a view or take action, is it insulting and performative? Does it do any real good, or is it merely symbolism to promote sales and better PR? Is it possible for a company to do both, or one, or the other, or should it just do neither? Certainly, the NFL is an institution where racial power dynamics are clearly visible. So should performers use that giant institution that commands that $7 million for 30 seconds to reach a broad audience for one day? Or does it just stir up more abuse from racists and then disappear, changing nothing? I'm not in a position to answer that question, but it would be irresponsible for me to talk about this issue without acknowledging this as a legitimate question for any marginalized community that absolutely plagues this situation. But what I'm talking about here are the people in the community who did feel a sense of satisfaction from the event and how white people reacted. Just to preface the following, when I posted about my experience of the show, I was supportive of the platforming of Black Voices, and it was surreal to me to see it from an NFL stage, not the least of which was because I realized the reach of that platform is huge and something racists were likely to be watching and hosting. But I did mention to a friend who was watching the game with me that it was clearly whitewashed for the event and the audience. The dancers were dressed more conservatively and used mostly pretty conservative dance moves. And there wasn't much swearing going on, but even that was too much for the folks who want to maintain privilege. My actual social media post at the time said, I watched it. I had a lot of thoughts about it. My first thought was how whitewashed it was, but not slamming the performers. That's the cost of doing a Super Bowl show. I did like that they featured dancers in all sizes. And even though a lot of the dance was tame, there was the occasional move shown that reflected some of the African dance-based hip-hop moves that white audiences often criticize as too sexualized. No swearing, and the more out-front anti-racism content was restricted. Frankly, it was just nice to see something that big focused not just on a black performer, but on actual black cultural expression, even if it had to be translated for white audiences. I hope it inspires some white folks to look further into these artists and this art form. In response to the event, folks like Charlie Kirk seemed to try and slide his racism in under the guise of being offended at the sexuality of the event, even though it really wasn't any more sexual than watching cheerleaders at any game. 
He called it sexual anarchy and said it shouldn't be allowed on television. The tweet got 12.8 thousand likes. I won't comment on retweets because often folks retweet to condemn an initial tweet, so likes is a better metric. As one response expressed, I'm confused. The cheerleaders on the sidelines were more sexual than the halftime show. Just two days after the event, as the issue was still raging, that's when Lieutenant Governor of Texas Dan Patrick decided to post the message on social media about CRT that I read earlier, calling it poisoning young minds. White racist leadership and public figures couldn't ignore it and had to condemn it on some level or another to reaffirm their commitment to white supremacy and to pushing back on challenges to racism and racist institutions. The voices of these hip-hop artists on a platform this large could not stand without white pushback, just as Kaepernick's gesture could not stand without white pushback. Obviously, most folks aren't going to say outright that they want to maintain white supremacy. So it's, he's being unpatriotic, or that show was too sexy. These dog whistles are then taken up by the sleeping masses who spread them like ripples, not even aware they're spreading the silencing of black voices. It's not about supporting patriotism or some odd disgust with overt sexuality. It's about being a cog in a racist machine to support white supremacy. And that's the thing. It's not so much the overt racist that is the problem. It's that the overt racist in power can get a lot of people to do the work of racism for him by pretending it's not about race, and then sending them out into society to antagonize black people and communities over this show. And this is part of why I don't judge the black artists who did the show, even though backlash was predictable. Ultimately, it's not them who are responsible for the systemic racism and the backlash. It's me. It's the white community and the leadership that we continue to put in power that won't dismantle this system and fix this problem. The anger, the backlash, the fear all comes from a system that these performers are the targets of. And I am someone who, like it or not, benefits from the violence and the abuse aimed at them and everyone else within their community. If anyone is going to judge them, let it be the others who are abused, not one of their abusers. One Twitter account that goes by Truth Hurts self-describes as a former radio host and patriot, tweeted to say, Sad to say that the NFL has degraded to N-word crap, except he actually used the word. He deleted the tweet himself eventually, but at the time I screen-grabbed it, it had over 2,400 likes. I blocked out the offensive slur and posted it as an example of what the backlash looked like at its most overt. His account is still active, by the way, and despite deleting the tweet, he still has tweets up that are openly critical of the show. And despite editing his language, he already let us all know what his objection really was about with the tweet he deleted. Saying it out loud is what you're not supposed to do. My post about that tweet said, When people are posting these types of assaults on the black community, and your only contribution as a white person is... I didn't care for the halftime show, you're decentering the issue, and your clear inability to prioritize is a big part of the problem. It was a call to ask the white folks who are wallowing in ignorance and obliviousness to understand the actual implications of the event and show support, rather than extreme or even casual criticism of it. Stand up for your fellow black humans and explain to people that the right answer is to support not to join the voices shitting on the event. 
one of my now ex-social media friends, who not surprisingly was a white guy, actually responded to my post to say that the show was just okay, and he liked the Prince halftime show better. I did not recognize the guy, but from his own page, it was pretty clear that he has substantial financial privilege, in addition to being white. And his comment was not ignorant. It was informed. He knew what he was saying and the implications of it in the context of my post. I was literally saying, don't join the voices of those shitting on black people and communities. And he saw it as an opportunity to shit on black people and communities. Because that's who he is. In response to an image of a tweet calling the event N-word crap and a call for support, he jumped on to be a racist troll. Another similar racist comment had to do with the debate around whether Eminem's kneeling was symbolic of Kaepernick's protest template. For me as a white person, it doesn't matter. The gesture became a symbol very quickly, and a lot of folks in the black community on social media latched onto it for inspiration. It was not my job as a white person to try and find a way to strip that symbol and that inspiration from them. That is, I don't really care if Eminem was kneeling to tie his shoes. The point is that it was being symbolized for empowerment, and that isn't something I'm going to take away from a community that needs all the empowerment it can get. So when I saw a white guy on Facebook post to say that, quote, it's not taking a knee unless you do it during the national anthem. Doing it during your own song means nothing, in my opinion. I replied, you're not the voice of black community symbolism. And while the top-level pundits were busy handing out the not-racist, racist talking points to the masses, and the masses contributing nothing but rippling those points or saying dismissive, casual, racist things about their white-hot takes on the quality of the show or the point of kneeling, what really hurt was seeing comments like this from my friends on social media who are black. Quote, Being hated so is par for the course, like nothing new. But sometimes thinking about it just feels so sad. Like they fucking hate us so damn much. Like what the fuck we ever do to them. I replied to say, Not a damn thing. It's what we did to you. That's why this shit is so violent. We're the ones who did the shit. And now we're the ones saying, Shut up about it to the people still paying the price for the shit we did and keep doing. This is what makes it an injustice. You did nothing to earn or deserve this. Honestly, was it too much to ask to just support someone like this and be happy for them for one goddamn day? If my friend tells me they're pregnant, can I not put my own discomfort with pregnancy and childbirth aside and just, you know, be happy for them? Do I really need to choose that moment to say, wow, really, why would you want to put yourself at risk like that? Aren't you concerned about the impacts on and risk to your health? Why would you do this to yourself? How is that even close to appropriate to express? Clearly, it's not. It's self-centering. It's dismissive. It's colloquially what we call raining on someone's parade. But in these cases where we have mass social injustice or deep-rooted personal feelings of joy. Why do I have to make that moment about me and my shitty hot take? 
Can there be one moment that I allow to someone else? Can the white community give black communities and people just one thing? One day to celebrate with them about what this means instead of having to talk about how we don't get hip-hop or how that show wasn't all that or whatever else we can say that is not about supporting their moment in the sun? When I was drafting this talk, I initially used the death of a child, much like the bracelet story in the last episode. I said, if someone was dealing with the death of a child, I wouldn't go up to them at the funeral just to let them know I never really liked kids. It might be true, but if that's all I have to contribute to the situation, it really is best I just withhold the comment entirely. If I can't even be there to try and support them, can I at least not pile on to their grief? Is inserting myself into the situation and making it all about me really so immediately important that I don't care who I hurt or the cumulative damage I'm contributing to? If you really don't care about being part of the solution, it still doesn't explain going out of your way to ensure that you're part of the problem. You literally could do nothing, could say nothing, but for so many people, they just can't stand not being the center of things. They have to step in and give their two cents, even when it adds nothing but pain in a situation where someone else and their pain really should be the focus. After I had scripted this talk, I took a break for lunch. I was eating, and I sat down, and I saw a post from a friend of mine sharing some thoughts on the new Pixar film Turning Red. The blog where it's posted is called Diary of a Mom, and in it, she talks about the importance of representation, but it's the last bit that caught my attention, where she says, Cat Black summed it up, quote, At some point, I hope white men genuinely unpack the fact that stories about white people are universal, but stories about people of color are supposedly for a specific audience, unquote. People of color raised in this country are always taught to empathize with white people, but it's really clear to me that white folks generally see anything that centers a person who isn't white as a deviation. When I read that, I realized the insight was so spot on. It raises another interesting point about how interesting it is that the dominant culture in the U.S. is white, but I so often encounter conversations where white people are explaining to non-white people how white people view something, or how they, as a white person, view it. It's like they don't understand that this other non-white person has also spent their time in the U.S. immersed in white culture messaging. They get what white people think, because we never shut up about what we think. Then, when they ask us to listen, we still talk and argue, as if we have to explain how a white person views it. They know. They're trying to tell us how they view it because we so rarely get to actually hear any other narratives unless we go out of our way to look for them. Even my streaming services, some of them, have black cinema sections. Which is great if you're looking for black cinema, but it speaks to what this mom is saying. The streaming service is reflecting the social othering of black culture. Heck, even the store where I grocery shop has an entire aisle dedicated to hair care products. But if you want what they label ethnic hair care, you literally have to go look on another aisle. When you walk up to a grieving parent and you say you never really liked kids anyway and don't see what anybody really likes about them, are you showing that you take their grief and their pain and their distress seriously? Or are you just telling the world that you're all that matters? No matter what kind of carnage people are dealing with all around you, you are all that matters. 
The white community is incredibly selfish with platforms and voices. We think we have to have our views front and center on any issue, even if it's not about us, and even if it's going to put a damper on someone else's feelings of excitement and celebration at finally being seen, even for 15 minutes one afternoon. We really don't have to own everything about everything. All it takes is wanting to allow it to be about someone else sometimes. And it's sad how hard that is. And yeah, I get the irony of me doing this podcast as a white person while I'm saying these things, but it's why I'm trying to work on giving more communities more voices using this platform. I didn't name this podcast after me. I didn't play to my atheist roots and name recognition on purpose. My goal here is to, as much as I can, make sure to get voices on here who aren't heard, who aren't activists with platforms, who aren't dominant culture. I would really like to foster some unity, ultimately, between marginalized people because I think we have more power together than divided. But to unify, we need to understand each other better. We need to work on building trust before we can build unity. Alone, we are small communities. But together, we are a majority and a force if we can overcome our prejudices toward each other. I'm working on two episodes currently that I've invested several weeks in research into. I want to say that just because an episode doesn't post for a few weeks really doesn't mean I'm not working on this podcast. I am, but my goals are about more than just me spewing my privileged opinions. If that's all I wanted to do, all you'd hear is me getting on and talking. That's what I want to get away from, but it means coordinating people from different communities in order to try and make that happen. And the more people involved, the more complicated it becomes. I'll be talking more about that in a future episode, but for now, know that a few weeks of silence does not mean progress is not being made. That's it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.